relationships and broken societies. So he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? And in light of that, the crowd began to go home and collect wood. And they brought all the wood they could find from the city and back and, and bundles and sticks from, from their shops and from public bathhouses. The Jews, as usual, were happy to join in. They came. They laid it around him. The pile was ready. Polycarp, as he was preparing to step on the pile of wood, took off his outer clothes. He undid his belt. He tried to take off his sandals, but it was something he was not used to doing. At 86 years old, faithful Christians loved to come and help him and take off his sandals for him. So he, he fumbled, but he got them off. And then they went to fix him to a stake with nails, much like his Savior. But he said, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And so he stood. They lit the pile of wood on fire. But what they found is that Polycarp didn't burn, at least not as they expected. Instead, he, instead of being charred, began to look like a loaf of bread or, or like gold that was being refined in the fire. And he was not dying as quickly as they would have thought that he should have. And so someone brought a dagger and finished him off. What could cause a man to endure such a death? Not just sharing in the sufferings of Christ, but standing at the head of a long line of brothers and sisters who have gone before us and endured much of the same. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? What causes people to endure such things so that they may see in whatever way that they can the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ forward, even if it's just an inch? What can cause people to stand and endure such things as fire itself being burned for their faith in Jesus Christ? Seeing that for the believer... In the end, the answer for us is that Christ has done us no wrong. We see this not first in Polycarp, but we actually see this in Paul himself. We've seen this in many weeks as we've come to this place where we're at today in Acts 25 and 26. We saw that Paul, he's gone on three separate missionary journeys around different cities in the Middle East and into Asia and to the larger regions and to different cities. And every step of the way, in every city that he's gone to, he has faced mocking, he has faced ridicule, he has faced beatings and stoning and being put on trial over and over again. Until the point where we come today that he has been imprisoned now for over two years in chains, no control over his life. And he has endured it. He has stayed in the midst of this trial for one reason. We heard about it back in Acts 23, 11. But on that night immediately following, the Lord stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So we see, as we saw last week in chapter 24 of Acts, that Paul is kept in prison. He's entertained from time to time. He entertains Felix and, and his wife, and he has conversations with them. But, but he's kept there for over two years until eventually Felix ends up leaving office as governor, and a new governor comes in by the name of Festus. And this is what we find in the first part of chapter 25. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. It's on page 878 and 879 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use the Pew Bible. We're more than happy to let you use those. And I'll say this as always as I begin to summarize and, and get us into the passage today. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you've come to the right place today. We have some free Bibles we'd love to give you as our gift to you today. And they're in the foyer. Grab one on your way out. 
But as we get into Acts 25, at least there in those first 12, 12 verses, we find this new governor kind of steps in by the name of Festus, which is a great name. Any of you who are looking to have children sometime soon, there's a good name for a little boy, Festus. Let's see who takes that one up. But again, Paul is brought to trial under Festus' rule as governor against the Jews. The Jews come and they accuse him of, of treason this time, trying to rope in Rome and trying to rope in Caesar and, and just get Paul straight up killed at this point. And Festus gives him an option there in those first 12 verses. He says, you can go back to Jerusalem and be put on trial there, or I can send you to Rome and you can be tried under Caesar. We see there that Paul says, Give me Caesar. Give me Caesar. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. Now some may say that Paul said that because he was scared of being killed by the Jews. But I say that's foolish. Why? Because Paul himself had been told, as I just read from Acts 23.11, that he was to go to Rome. And so when he's given the option and the road diverges, he goes down the road that Christ has called him to. Which brings us really to Acts 25, 13. Paul says he wants to go to Rome and, and Festus has no idea what to do or why to send him. He has no charges to press against him. Festus sees no actual reason to even keep Paul imprisoned at this point. The dispute he has is just a dispute in Festus' mind over the religion of the Jews. And so why should he keep him under arrest? And so let's pick up then in Acts 25, verses 13 through 27. Friends, let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word as I read this introductory passage to our text for today. This is the Word of God to us from Acts 25, 13 through 27. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice... Stop there. Bernice is Agrippa's sister, okay? And Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying... There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought." When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem or be tried and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here? shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him." This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we see here in this kind of introductory session, section that, that, that Paul has an opportunity to finally stand before King Agrippa. Now this King Agrippa, he's an important character. His sister Bernice is an important character as well. This is Agrippa, just to give you some historical context before we kind of jump into what Paul has to say today. This is Agrippa II. Okay, so Agrippa II is actually the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was ruling at the time of Jesus' birth. You'll remember it was Herod who sent and had all of the young Hebrew babies and boys killed, and in order to kill this coming Messiah, King of the Jews, 
whom Jesus was able to escape through Mary and Joseph's obedience to the Spirit. And so we find that Agrippa now stands in the lineage of his great-grandfather Herod the Great. He's also the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and who presided over the very trials of Jesus. He's the son of Agrippa I, who we read about back in Acts 12, who had James the Apostle killed by the sword. And so we see this guy Agrippa, King Agrippa, he, he's no friend of Christians by any means. He is no friend of God's people. In fact, he stands in a long line of his daddy's daddy daddy of just straight up killing God's people. And so it's not looking so good for Paul, is it? See there in those verses I read that Festus lays out the argument and the circumstances to Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa wants to hear from Paul himself for some reason. And they enter with this great pomp into this audience hall, which would have been this giant kind of tribunal kind of courtroom. Maybe even look very similar to the building that we're sitting in. And they, they came in and there's all of this, this pomp and this, this excitement that they're there. The king has come. And we find then that Paul has to give another defense. This is the third time that he's given a defense in, in so many chapters. In chapter 22 and 24, he also did the exact same thing. But this, out of Paul's defense, is perhaps his greatest in the entire book of Acts. We learn a lot here about Paul, about his circumstances, and about why he's doing what he's doing that we, we kind of had glimmers of before this. And so what I want us to do this morning is take chapter 26 and just dive into it and look at the four parts of Paul's defense, his final defense that we have recorded in the book of Acts. And it kind of gives us a good time to just stop and pause and think about everything that's happened in the life of Paul as we prepare over the next two weeks to look at the last two chapters of Acts. Friends, we are coming to the tail end of this. We are coming to the culmination of everything that has been building chapter after chapter. So let's stop here and let's see what Paul has to say in Acts 26. There's four parts, as I said, to his defense. Let me go ahead and tell you what they are, and you can write these down at least how I've broken them down. Part one, you have Jesus hated. Jesus is hated. Part number two, you have Jesus encountered. Part number three, you have Jesus proclaimed. And part four, you have Jesus defended. Jesus hated, encountered, proclaimed, and defended. And as we look at each of those, my prayer is that we would be just like Polycarp, just like Paul, that we would see that, that salvation from Jesus Christ is all that we need. And that we find in our Savior someone who will never leave us nor forsake us no matter what the world throws at us. So let's start by getting into the text. Let's look at Paul's defense in part one, Jesus hated. And we see this in verses 1 through 11 of Acts 26. Let me read those verses for us. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that, that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and, customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to God by our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do, nothing, to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this first part, as I said, we see Jesus hated by Paul. Agrippa here holds power as the king. 
as the king, he had been given authority over many cities at this time. And so he's there, and, and his very presence is important. And so Paul steps before him, stretching out his hand, and makes a defense. We see here that Paul's not put on trial. In fact, this word in the Greek is the word apologia. It's the word we get our word apologetics from. That Paul is making an apology, not, not that he's saying sorry, that's not what we mean by that, but, but that he is giving a defense, he is being a witness, he is making his case known. He wants Agrippa to understand exactly what has gone on here. And what does he say? Well, friends, he begins doing nothing less than preaching the very gospel itself. And he preaches the very gospel to the second most important in the whole entire empire. The only person above King Agrippa is Caesar himself. I wonder what you would do if you were to stand before our vice president. Would you be ready to present the gospel in all of its glory? To make a defense for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Paul's been in prison just over two years. He's had some time to think about this. And so we see there in verses 4 and 5 that he says that the, the Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Sent One, the Christ, that all of these Jews can attest to who Paul actually is. He says there are three things, that, that, that they know his manner of life, they know the very places that he's lived, and they know the, the very religion and the very sect of that religion that he's given his life to, that the Jews can tell you all about these things, that I am who I say that I am. And then we find there in verses 6 and 7 that he, he says things that very similar to what he has said before in Acts 9 and Acts 22, but now he ties his upbringing to the Word of God itself. You see there, look back, it says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. Paul does something interesting here. He ties his defense and his being in chains and him being in prison for the last two years, he ties it to the Old Testament. Specifically, he ties it to Genesis and to Exodus and what happens there. He ties his story of everything that has happened to him to the Bible itself. You know, what is the promise that he's talking about there that's made to the fathers that the tribes had hoped to obtain? Well, you've got to know who the fathers are, right? And we know these. They're talked about over and over through the, through the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, this is what we mean. We talk about the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs. And what do we find the promise given, at least to all three of them? There are various ways that God speaks to them in those opening chapters there in the book of Genesis. But we find... In Genesis 12, in Genesis 26, and in Genesis 28, that there's one central promise that is given to all of the fathers, and it's this, that they will have the blessing of offspring. That there will be an offspring, a son, that comes through their line. And that through their offspring, they will bless the nations. That they will be a blessing to the entire earth. And this is the same hope of the tribes, the tribes of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, those 12 sons that grow into the great multitude that we find in the book of Exodus. The hope was that God was finally fulfilling His promise, that the offspring would be it's the numbers of the sand on the shore, that they would be a blessing to the whole world, that the ethnicities of the world would be blessed through this people What's Paul getting at here? Well, we see that Paul has always been in the business of, of looking at how God is fulfilling His promise through the resurrection. This is something we mentioned very early on in our study of the book of Acts, that the resurrection and the ascension of Christ take the central focus. Yes, they talk about the cross. Yes, they talk about the death of Jesus. It's going to be talked about even here in just a minute. But the resurrection becomes the central turning point of all of human history. And so Paul says there in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? Why do you think it's crazy when you look back at the fathers? What is he getting at? Why do you think it's crazy when you look back at the prophets? What is he getting at? Well, maybe he's talking about 
different passages in the Bible where we see so clearly that there's going to be a resurrection. This is one of the things the Pharisees really honed in on, is that the Old Testament teaches that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And so we see later on in Hebrews 12, I'm sorry, 11, 12, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Hebrews there is talking about Abraham. It's this understanding of the Old Testament. Abraham was so old, he was good as dead, that Isaac was taken up to the mountain to be sacrificed. He was good as dead. That Jacob, because of his own sin, is cast out from the family and cast out into the wilderness. He's as good as dead. And yet, God continues to fulfill His promises. That His people were enslaved as good as dead in Egypt, and God springs them out, rescuing them, that they may worship Him in the wilderness. Friends, this has always been the mission of God's people. That He would bring them out and raise them up to display His glory. And proclaiming this reality has enraged the Jews. It has ticked them off over and over. But Paul was also enraged himself, we see, don't we? There in verses 9 through 11, you see that Paul was strongly opposed. He says that he had a raging fury against God's people. But I want you to notice, and, and we haven't seen this in, in, a, in a bit in the book of Acts, but particularly what he says. Look back at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing who? The name of Jesus of Nazareth. We're reminded of something that Luke has tried to make clear over and over and over in this book. That the name of Jesus means something. That there's power in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And so Paul has said, I was opposing that name and all of those who came under that name, those who were Jesus' followers. He refers to those whom he killed, though, as what? Do you notice how he inserts where this story is going? He says that I punished them often. And sorry, go back up to 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints, in prison. That word saints there means the sanctified ones, the ones who have been made holy and who are being made holy. That he was putting in prison the very ones that God himself had made holy. Paul is getting at the very idea, the very depth of his sin and what he was doing and what he was about as this one who had supposedly been holy and being a Pharisee and following the Jewish traditions was in putting those in prison who had actually been made holy. Holy. What had Paul missed here? This is the final time that Paul brings all of this up, so it's worth noting. What is it that Paul had missed in his former life when he hated Jesus? Friends, he missed God himself. He missed the work of God. And instead of following God and what he was doing in Jesus Christ, he followed his manner of life. He followed a religion he followed something that he had control over. Instead of handing himself over to God, he had been blinded by rage at something that threatened his own ways. But he tells us one more time how his life was radically altered as he encountered Christ. Let's look at part two then, his encounter with Jesus. Let me read verses 12 through 18. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me 
and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, who are saints, by faith in me. Paul here continues to bring up his ties to the the Jewish leaders, that the very reason that he was on his way to Damascus is because he's sent out by these Jewish leaders, realizing, and he wants Agrippa to realize this too, that that the charge was on them, that they can attest and, and affirm that that was actually what happened. And up to this point, they have been the ones that he was obeying. But there on the road to Damascus, we are told that something happens. Again, this is the third time now that this has been brought up. First we saw Luke recount recount it in real time back in Acts 9. And now Paul has brought it up multiple times, sharing about how Jesus intervened into his life. All the major details are still here. But there are a handful of new details that are added. I wonder, wonder as you've gone with us through the book of Acts, or if you read this recently, if you noticed a few different things that are included here in this portion. I want to point uh, four of them out to you as we think about Paul's encounter with Jesus, how Paul encountered Jesus. Number one, we see that Jesus speaks in the Hebrew language. Traditionally, this would have been Aramaic. So all assumptions are made there that, that Jesus spoke to Paul, Saul, then, in Aramaic. Now, we didn't know this before, but we're told this here now. Why do you think Saul, Paul, would bring this up now, that Jesus spoke in this way? I think he's making a clear point here to Agrippa that this Jesus, who, who's speaking to him, that this Jesus is of the Hebrew descent himself. That, that he is, is, is existing in the line of the Jewish tradition. But then we find out that just what Jesus says. He says what we've, we've read before. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But then Jesus says something new, doesn't he? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does this mean? Well, we, if you don't know anything about farming or, or agriculture, goads are, are these really sharp sticks that are used to prod the oxen. And so if the oxen are plowing and they're not going along, they'll get prodded and poked along until they get moving. And so Paul here is speaking of how he has resisted God's will. How God has come in Jesus Christ. That the gospel has been proclaimed. The kingdom has been established. The church has been born. And Paul, who should have been on board with all of this as a good Pharisee, should have seen the fulfillment of all the Old Testament said, has resisted the will of God. And now Jesus is going to be the goad that prods Paul along. He shows up and he says, you're kicking hard, but get ready, here it comes. He's already knocked him off of his horse and he's already blinded him. And he's about to do a bunch more in his life. We see there in 16 and 17 that Jesus just keeps on going. In Acts 22, Jesus says much of this in the trance that Paul experienced in the Jerusalem temple. But now, we see Jesus say a little bit more, don't we? 16 and 17. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And he begins to lay out all that he's going to be calling Paul to do. Paul is not lying when he mentions this, though. Let me just say this as we read our Bibles. It's important that we know how to read our Bibles because these accounts are different in 9, 22, and 26 here. Paul is not lying. Instead, he's he's summarizing what has taken place and, and he's giving the truth in a certain way for the certain situation in which he's saying it. Much in how we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. They don't contradict one another, but they're written from different perspectives and for different purposes. And so we see Paul doing much of the same here. He's been called by Jesus, he says, to rise and to stand. He's been appointed to be a servant and a witness. He's going to be delivering, and that Jesus himself is sending him. Do you see, even as Paul recounts what Jesus has done, how Jesus owns him, how Jesus has come, and He is now the King and the authority in His life. All of these differences then emphasize one thing, that Jesus has intervened in Paul's life, and now Paul is on mission for Him. That He's no longer going the way of the Jewish leaders, but He's going 
on the way, in the way of Jesus. Friend, I wonder if you see yourself this way. Christian, I wonder if you see yourself this way in your own story. How Jesus has conquered your life and how He's changing you. Why is it important for us to understand this? Well, look at the very goal in 18. The goal is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Friends, this is the gospel itself. That the very reason that Paul has been called out by God, and he emphasizes these different details now here, is so that he can make the point that he was captured by Jesus so that he could share the gospel. Friends, this is the good news. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the central thing that we want you to know. This is why we exist as a church too, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He has come and all of those who put their faith in Him and His life and His death and His resurrection and His ascension at the right hand of the Father where He intercedes by the merit of His blood, all of us who turn to Him, who put our faith in Him and who turn from the world and the sin and from our own selves and put our life in His hands by faith receive salvation in the very way that Paul speaks of it here. And so we see where Paul began by obeying the chief priest. After encountering Jesus, we find that his obedience and his loyalty has changed. And has changed to the one true great high priest, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third part of the story. And that's Jesus proclaimed. Let me pick up in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is what Paul has given his life to. We see there that he says, O King Agrippa, he, he inserts this from time to time in this defense, doesn't he? And it's almost as if uh, Agrippa was like some of us when somebody's talking and we start to drift off. Right? He's like, oh, come back. Oh, King Agrippa, listen. This is what happened next. Listen. The power of the ascended Christ and His revealing Himself to me demanded my obedience. That Jesus came and He gave me a word and He showed Himself in this vision and I had to respond. Now, this becomes a question for some of us. Is when should we obey things like promptings by the Spirit or visions or dreams or those kind of things? We see here how Paul does it, and we get a good rubric for doing it ourselves in these days. That, that he obeyed because it clearly aligned with Scripture itself. He submitted himself to the Bible, and he knew the Bible from front to back. And so he knew the Old Testament was calling for this Messiah who would give new life through his death. Paul began to put the pieces together. He says, no, this Jesus who appeared to me, yeah, that makes sense. Everything that he did, I see it now. So I'm just going to go with what the Bible says. So, so the first thing he does with his vision is he submits it to Scripture itself. Well, the second thing he does is he keeps in step with the Spirit himself. He understands that, that, that when, when God is leading in these ways and gives us promptings in these ways, He's doing it through the Holy Spirit so that Christ might be glorified and so that the kingdom might be built. This is the move of the Spirit to glorify Christ and to build the kingdom. And finally, it was supported by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You remember, he went to Ananias and Ananias confirmed everything that he had seen. This is why 
there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. This is why when we feel like the Lord is telling us to do something, we must submit it to the Bible. Is that what the Bible says? When we feel like we're being led in a certain way, are we going against what the Spirit is t turning us towards? And when we make a decision, have we received input from our brothers and sisters in Christ? If the local church is not a group of people who are willing to say hard things to you and to help you and to serve you and to help you navigate through life, then what are we doing here? And so we see here that Paul emphasizes all three and so he goes. He notes again then what he declared, repentance and turning toward God. And this is exactly what we mean when we use the word conversion, isn't it? That to be converted from sin to God. This turning that takes place that we are turning from the old and into the new. This is what happens when our eyes are open to the glories of Jesus. And this is what we are praying for. We gather on Sunday evenings, and this is one of the things that we've kept on our prayer list for a while now. That the Spirit would bring conversions. Because what flows from it? You see there... In verse 20, at the end, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Bearing fruit in keeping with their repentance. Friends, I, I hope you understand this. That, that, that Jesus doesn't just save you for you. But He saves you so that you may glorify Him through bearing fruit through performing deeds. We're not saved by our performance, but our salvation demands performing deeds. It demands bearing fruit so that the kingdom may be built. This is the glory of salvation. Is that when we are converted, we begin to display that conversion so that others may be converted. So the question is, are you bearing fruit in your heart and soul? Is the Spirit transforming your, your heart and your mind and, and your desires? The mark of a person who's been converted is that they begin to bear fruit as such because we are grafted in. And then we see there in the last part that Paul is given to going. And he goes to the point of being persecuted. He sees, he knows that he's a threat to the Jews. But each step of the way, he has help from heaven itself. And we've seen this in Paul's life, haven't we? That every step of the way, Jesus is there and Jesus is helping him and the Spirit is empowering him to keep going. And so he says, I've declared the gospel message to every place I've went and I declare it again now. And I love how he says it there. In verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. This is the glory of the gospel message that young and old, that every nation, that men and women can be welcomed into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we are called to give ourselves to. This is the good news. Children, despite what our world tells you, you are not dumb. You can know and understand the gospel. That Jesus came and gave His life for us who turn to Him. And at a young age, you can turn to Him and be welcomed into the kingdom. Friends, this is the answer to all the cultural divisions that we see among us in these days. The answer is not to come up with some newfangled idea to help bridge gaps. No, the gospel is a gospel for the nations. It is a gospel that welcomes in everyone who turns to Christ. This is the good news for anyone who would believe. 
So obviously the ethnic Jews saw him as a threat because it undid everything that they had tied up in their ethnicity and, and their culture and, and their traditions. But he has been strengthened by the very one they claim to worship. Isn't that interesting? And he goes to declare the very Bible that they hold out. You know, what does he mean here by the prophets and Moses? Well, he, he could mean the whole Old Testament. That's a way to talk about the entire Old Testament, the prophets and Moses. But I think more than likely, he's point, he, he has some specific text in mind. Let me give you a couple that he may have been thinking of. Take Deuteronomy 18, 18. The words of Moses himself, speaking for the Lord. The Lord gives Moses a word, and Moses speaks this word to the people. And what does he say? This is what the Lord says. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. So through Moses, there's a prophet who's going to come. A big P prophet who's going to come, just like Moses, and he's going to declare the words. Maybe he's thinking of Hosea. Hosea we're going to get into Hosea next summer. That's the plan, at least, Lord willing. But let me give you one right now. Hosea 6, 1 through 3. What does he say there? Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn, and He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What is this alluding to? This being raised up on the third day thing. Paul knows his Bible. The question is, will we still hold out this same message from our own Bibles? It's the ongoing mission of the church. Paul would write about it to the church at Colossae, wouldn't he? He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. Friends, this is the hope. But the final section we see things are not always received as well as you would hope they would be when you declare this gospel message. Let's look at, finally, Jesus defended in 24 through 29 of Acts 26. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, so maybe don't use the name Festus if you have a kid, because here we go. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about all these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. As Paul's giving his apologia, his defense, he gets cut off with a loud voice. You know what Festus says here? That Paul's learning has made him out of his mind. We have this phrase in our own vernacular that you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, Paul. You, you, you've learned too much. You're just a head case. You, you, you're just all out there. I know that feeling. I've been told that as a pastor before. He's so consumed by the Word of God that Festus thinks him crazy. And friends, just as a side application, this is a great test of your Christianity right here. This is a great test of if you're following Jesus well. I don't know who you are. Somebody needs to hear this, though. If you have a conversation with someone who isn't a Christian, and you're talking to them about your faith in Jesus Christ, or you're talking to them about your lifestyle and the way that you live, if they don't at least look at you like you're crazy, much less say that you're crazy, you might be doing something wrong. Because the response of Festus is the response of the world in light of who Jesus is and in light of following Him. Don't be surprised when you get cut off in sharing the gospel and people say, you're crazy, man. I'm out of here. 
What are you doing? What have you been reading? Why are you living like this? It doesn't make any sense by worldly standards. So we need to ask ourselves this. Am I actually following Jesus or following the world and, and slapping an I love Jesus on my bumper sticker while I plod along down the world's pathways? So Paul gives a defense of his defense then, right? He, he, he's like matrix level now. He's like defending his defense. Paul understands here the actual truth, actual, actual rationality, actual reality. And he doesn't much care for Festus truth and questioning and condescension. He understands that what, what Festus sees as truth is not real. It's not actually true. It is a mind that has been marred and blurred by sin and by Satan, by the world. And so he wants to turn to the king and he says, maybe I can get through to this guy. It's a bold assumption. Paul calls on Agrippa to believe, aiming to persuade him of the reasonableness that he has made known. And then we find in Agrippa then a picture of walking in darkness and being dead in your sin, don't we? There's a certain condescension in his statement. It marks this worldly mindset. Could you persuade me to be a Christian? There's a certain callousness he shows at the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus, I want, who's that guy? A lunatic, still dead in the grave. There's a certain disdain that comes across showing that he is right where Paul was, hating Jesus. Agrippa hates him. But Paul's response shows us the true heart of a Christian, not just pastors or missionaries, but the true heart of Christians is in Paul's response. Look back at it in verse 29. Paul said, whether short or long, meaning time, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Friends, if you want a, a biblical defense for sharing the gospel each moment and each decade of your life, here it is. Paul says whether it's short or long, whether I can do it in 30 seconds or I have 30 years to share the gospel, I'm going to do it. This is the mark of a Christian. Paul is able to stand firm and give an answer for his hope. He's able to be open and honest about his past life. Paul does not try to hide anything. He admits to murder even. He's able to open the scriptures and reveal what's held out because of the one goal that he has alone. That they too would be blinded to the glory of Christ and in turn be given eyes to see that glory. Paul wants them to know what he has known, except for the chains. When our purpose in life, then friends, is to bring glory to Jesus through living a life open before the watching world, speaking of his good news to our friends and our neighbors, then we too can face the harshest circumstances like Paul does. There are many lessons for us to be learned here from Paul, but this is the chief among them. When you face trials, whether it's because you're a Christian or just because we live in a fallen world, when you face intimidation, when you face opposition, even spiritual opposition from the enemy and the demonic world around us, when you are forced even in your day-to-day -day life, even if it's only your coworkers that's next to you or, or it's your children, or it's your spouse, or e even if you're single and you're the only one who knows, you are called to give a reason for the hope that you have with meekness and godly fear. We can learn to be as Paul is here through trusting in the precious providence of God, that He has at work in and through our chains, our heartbreaks and are waiting. Look at the last two verses and how this passage ends. Three verses. Begin verse 30. 
Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Great. Isn't that great news? Free to go. He didn't do it. He did not do anything wrong. Verse 32. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man, he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Do you understand the providence of God? That in the moment when Paul was given a chance to go back to Jerusalem, he followed the path that Jesus told him. And he remained in chains. This is what God's providence looks like. This is what God's sustaining us looks like. So how can we endure? How can we stand? How do we continue on without throwing in the towel and saying, forget this whole Christianity thing. Forget this Jesus guy. I just want to do what I want to do. I want all of the suffering to be gone. I want to follow my own ways. How do we stay in the cross-bearing fight? Because we know the certainty of Christ. Have you encountered that Christ this morning? This is the journey of the saved who once hated Jesus, but then encountered Him and then proclaim Him and defend Him until their last dying breath. When we know Him and we love Him and we receive Him, we can endure the hottest flames and the sharpest daggers, much like Polycarp. Also, 1,800 years later, God's people were still doing the very same thing, weren't they? You know, on the day before Nate Saint and Ed McCauley and Peter Fleming and Jim Elliott made their way to the Hurani Indians in Ecuador. They sang a hymn together. They sang a hymn together that would stand in the long line of their brothers like Polycarp, like Paul, that Jesus would sustain them and that he continues to this day. Here are a couple stanzas from that hymn. We rest on thee our shield and defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender, we rest on thee and in thy name we go. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender, we rest on thee and in thy name we go. Yea, in thy name, O captain of salvation, in thy dear name, all other names above, Jesus our righteousness and our sure foundation, our Prince of glory, and our King of love. Jesus, our righteousness, and our sure foundation, our Prince of glory, and our King of love. Friends, may we sing the same as we stand before a watching world. Let us pray. God, we do not pretend to have the strength and the endurance to stand under all that the world and Satan and even our own hearts throw at us. And so we need your sustaining work. God, as we prepare to come to this table, as we taste and drink, reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray that we would not just be physically sustained by food and drink, but that we would be spiritually sustained by the very word made flesh, Jesus, our righteousness, our captain, our sure foundation. In his name we pray.